Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Father, we acknowledge that in a moment's time, you justify us, you declare us righteous, you call us holy ones, saints of God, and the merits of Christ's death and resurrection. Thank you that when we come as little children and place our full confidence in what Jesus did, that we enter into a new relationship. But we recognize that the process of sanctification is lifelong as you shape us and mold us into Christ's image. And we thank you that one aspect that you use is our fellowship with one another. You told us we're not to forsake our assembling together, but we are to consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And all the more, you said, as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. Thank you that you said we would be able to identify the times, and indeed we are living in such days. Our Father, we thank you too for your word. You call it milk and meat and honey and bread. It's food to the soul. You told us as we study it that we are not to lean on our own understanding. You've told us to use it but not to lean on it. And so we lean on the Spirit of God today, our ultimate teacher, that he would help us. And I pray that he would help me and fill me and speak through me because without him I can't do anything. May your word have its course today in such a way that the lost would be saved and the saved would be further sanctified in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' holy name, amen. Take God's word with you this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2. If uh, you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through the Revelation and God willing, next week we'll come back to Revelation 22. I think I have at least five more messages in the 22nd chapter before we're done. But this morning I want to address a question because it's come up several times in the last few months, and certainly I think it will come up again in the next few weeks in light of what we will study in Revelation 22. The sermon topic, as you can see on your note-taking outline, is your conversion real? I thought about titling this message, Are You Wheat or Are You Tear? An important question and one that is really highlighted in different ways in the book of Revelation. Here in Revelation 2 and verse 7, Jesus said this to the church in Ephesus, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, we studied just a few weeks ago in Revelation 22 that all true believers someday will eat of the tree of life. And here the implication is clear that if you are converted, you will indeed eat from the tree of life. But if you are not converted, you will not eat from that tree. Look what Jesus said in Revelation 2 and verse 11 to the church in Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, 
will not be hurt by the second death. The implication is clear is that not all will be of that group who overcomes. And so they will experience the second death, what the Bible calls retribution in the lake of fire. Turn over a page to Revelation 3 and verse 10. Revelation 3 verse 10. Listen to what Jesus said to the church in Philadelphia. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is an extremely healthy church, the church at Philadelphia, and Jesus promises the Christians there that because they have perseverance, which is a mark of real conversion, they will not be here for that time of testing. It's never happened in the history of the world, but it's going to happen. A time of testing which will come across the whole world, they will not be here for the great tribulation period. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 21 and verse 7. Listen to how he describes the truly saved. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now understand, you're not saved by perseverance, and you're not saved by overcoming the lures and the temptations and the pull of the world. But Jesus makes it very clear that if you are saved, you will persevere, you will overcome, you will go to heaven, you will eat of the tree of life, and you will never see the lake of fire. The Lord Jesus said this not only of believers living during the church age, but he also said it of believers who will come to know him during the tribulation age. He is speaking in Matthew 24 of the time of tribulation that will come on the whole earth. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 13, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. We've seen that during this period of time, most believers will pay for their confession of faith with their own life, but that a true believer will not renounce Christ. He will indeed endure to the end. Christ will indeed save him. Now, you may be asking yourself a question, well, how do I know if I really do persevere? How do I know if I will overcome until the day I die or when Christ returns? How can I know that I will endure to the end? And that's a very, very important question to ask and answer. And I'm very pleased that so many of you have come up to me or written me, a few have called me, and have asked me that question, that the revelation in our study of it has raised some questions in your own mind about salvation. That's a good thing, because now is the time to ask. Peter said it in 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. You want to make certain of God's calling on your life, that indeed you are chosen. Who are the chosen? Who are the elect? The elect are the whosoever will, the non-elect are the whosoever won'ts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul put it this way to the church at Corinth, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Is your conversion real? Are you wheat or are you a tare? Now, this is an important question to ask now 
Because the moment the church is raptured, you will not be able to ask that. You will be confirmed in your unbelief if you are not a true believer. None of those who hear the gospel before the church is caught up will be able to believe the gospel after we are gone. Now is the time to ask, am I wheat or am I tear? Am I a member of the sheep or am I a goat? Am I regenerate or unregenerate? Because it will be too late to ask in all of eternity. So I want to use as the launching pad Matthew chapter 7. Turn there, would you, to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew 7 brings to the end the most famous sermon ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus on a mountain, on a large hill, we would say today maybe, there in the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have stood with me to the very place where Jesus gave the sermon. And it's the only place on all of the Sea of Galilee where the acoustics are perfect, where you can stand and you can preach literally to thousands of people and you can be heard because of the way geographically God designed that little piece of land there on the Sea of Galilee. Without question, this is the best-known part of Christ's teaching, but probably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. We are living in a rather challenging day, but I'm not surprised by it because in the last of the last days, God told us it would be a time of apostasy where there would be a falling away, setting the stage for the apostasy of apostasies when the Antichrist comes. And so Jesus reminds us in this sermon that there is a difference between numbers in a church and real conversions. There's a difference between getting people into the kingdom and getting the kingdom into people. And the difference lies in the foundation, and the foundation you have will determine whether or not you will persevere, whether you will be an overcomer. In this section of Scripture, if you remember, Jesus spoke of two houses, the difference was in the foundation they had. One builder built his house upon the rock. The other built his house upon sifting sands. Both appeared to have the same kind of home. They both faced the same storm, but the outcome was quite different. And so Jesus gives us this sermon not only to test our justification, but also to help us in the process of sanctification. Justification is a truth that happens to you the moment you're saved, born again, where you are declared righteous, not simply just as if you had never sinned, but just as if you had always obeyed. God deems you a holy one. Sanctification is that process whereby God makes that true in our everyday experience. And so Jesus will teach in this portion of Scripture that even for the true child of God, as we obey what we know, we will grow and we will deepen in that sanctification process. Now, this morning, I hope to be able to ask and answer two questions. First and foremost, is your conversion real? You would hate to think that it is real and then die and find out it was not. And then secondly, if it is real, are you ready for the coming storms of apostasy? because they are upon us, and the wind seems to be picking up. Matthew chapter 7, follow along, beginning now in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, 
and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Our passage today is dealing with a critically important issue, and that we live in a day where people are hearing the Word of God and not really heeding it. And the phenomena that Jesus predicted that is upon us in our day is spoken of in the Olivet Discourse. We're in the last of the last days, in the final chapter of human history, before the second coming of Christ to the earth, there will be growing apostasy, people who outwardly say one thing, but inwardly they are quite deficient, individuals who in Paul's words have a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. They don't give evidence of a birth from above, and it's a serious problem that has walked straight now into the church of the evangelical church, dropout Christians, collapsing saints, vanishing church members, people who ought to be standing up, but people who are folding up, people who make a profession of faith, they get baptized, they're church members for a while, but then when trouble or persecution or heartache or temptation comes, the storms of life, to use Jesus' metaphor, they simply wash out. They are superficial saints. They do not have the genuine quality of being born from above. Maybe you know someone like this. Maybe you are struggling with this issue in your heart today. And you may think that everything is just fine, but when the storms come, you'll be gone. Now, that's not God's heart. God's heart is that none should perish but they'd all come to genuine, real repentance. Now, let me for a moment, before we dig into the finer points, give you an overview of the text. Here in verses 13 through 27, it's the end of a sermon that started all the way back in chapter 5. Jesus brings the sermon to a conclusion using four couplets of truth. You see, up to this point in the sermon, he has spoken of two kinds of righteousness— He has spoken of two treasures. He has spoken of two masters, and he will conclude with two foundations. Now the time for a decision has come. 
And so here in verses 13 and 14, he describes two ways, the broad way and the narrow way. He describes two teachers in verses 15 and 16, the true teacher and the false teacher. And then in verses 21 through 23, he describes two professions, the real and the phony. And then in verses 24 through 27, he brings it to a conclusion by describing two builders, the wise builder and the foolish builder. And in each of these pairs, Jesus is contrasting the true from the false. And so like every good preacher, Jesus asks people to make a decision. They've heard him preach, but now they must decide. Now, there are three principles by which Christ calls people to make a decision in this great sermon that I do not want you to miss. Three principles by which he calls us to stand strong in the midst of the coming storms. First, I want you to see there is a decision to make. There's a decision to make. And concerning this decision, first, I want us to see there are two ways to choose from, two ways in which to choose. Let's read again verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, if you will notice, there are only two ways, two paths, which forces everyone listening to the sermon there on this mount where he gives it, and everyone listening to my voice today, to the words of Christ that we are studying, it forces everyone to make a decision. Now, God, throughout the Tanakh, as Jews call their Old Testament, Tanakh, that's a new word to you, it's Torah, Nephilim, the prophets, Torah, the first five books, Nephilim, and then the Ketuvim which is the wisdom literature. So they don't call it the Old Testament. It's the only book they have. They call it the Tanakh. But throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly speaks of two ways, two roads, two paths. For instance, Moses, at the end of his life in Deuteronomy 30, said this, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. Likewise, the prophet Jeremiah said, you, you shall also say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. In Psalm 1, a psalm that our children memorize on Wednesday night, it speaks of the way of righteousness and the way of the wicked. Those on the way of righteousness are those who delight in God's law, showing they have real conversion and therefore they bear fruit and they prosper in the true spiritual sense. The way of the wicked, by contrast, are like the chaff who listen to ungodly counsel. They typically become scoffers. They make fun of God's word, and ultimately they perish. So you see this contrast throughout the word of God. There's the narrow road that leads to life, namely heaven, and then there is the broad road that leads to destruction, namely death and hell. And so God the Son reminds us of a truth that God the Holy Spirit led men of old to write about in the Old Testament. There have always been two ways, a narrow way and a broad way. And Christ is presenting a truth. There's a gate there's a way, there's a road, there's a destination, and there's a group of travelers. And so on one pathway, you have a wide gate. As people move down a broad road, many travelers, and their end is destruction or the lake of fire. On the other pathway, you have a narrow gate, 
a narrow road, few travelers, and their final destination is heaven in fellowship with the living God, which forces us to ask a question. Why are there so many people who are on the broad way having entered through the narrow gate? And the answer is simple. There's no obstruction. Now, the Greek word that is translated here wide, modifying this word road, means spacious, roomy, not crowded, as it's used in other places in the New Testament. And the second word, the Greek word translated broad, modifying uh, gate, is often translated in other contexts as easy. And so some of your English Bibles may read the wide and easy road at this gate. You can bring your sin, you can bring your selfishness, you can bring your self-centeredness, you can bring your bigotry. There's no restrictions at all in going down this broad road. Almost anything is allowed. There are no demands. And so the wide gate and the broad road allows travelers basically to live after the inclinations of their own heart. There's no curbs. There's no boundaries. There's no real standards. And so people on this road have superficial religious lives often. Sometimes they're called hypocrites. Sometimes they are highly outwardly religious, but morally, inwardly, they are deficient in the eyes of God because we all fall short of the glory of God. And so the sinful choices that are found on this road, they're not learned they just come naturally. You follow the implications of your own heart. Now, I have no doubt that there were probably many people listening on this day, many Jewish people, we know they were present in the audience, as you read the broader context, who said, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm a Jew. I'm a member of God's covenant community. I am certainly okay with God. And there are some who were probably listening who said, well, we follow the teachings of the Pharisees, and they had a righteousness that was external only, where if you made the right formations and wash your hands in a certain way and use certain words, you were okay. And there are a lot of people like that today. They are outwardly religious, but inwardly they are lost. And it's an easy way, it's a popular way, because all I have to do is conform externally. I don't have to conform internally. And the gate is wide because there's no limit to the amount of luggage you can carry with you through this gate. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to change your mind about anything. You can carry your sin and your self-righteousness and pride, and you can find a sense of comfort in that. But remember, the end of this road is that of destruction, not annihilationism, but the eternal wrath of God. The Lord Jesus did not believe in no hell raw bell that many are embracing today, that in the end, everybody goes to heaven. He didn't believe that at all. In fact, interestingly, the Living Bible paraphrases the portion of this verse with these words, the highway to hell is broad and the gate is wide enough for all the multitudes who choose its easy way. But clearly here in verse 14, if you will notice, there's another gate, another road, another destination. 
It is the small and narrow way. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And notice there are few who find it. The Lord Jesus anticipated that true believers would be a member of a despised minority movement. And we are told on this road there are few. On the other road that is wide and easy, there are many. Now, different English translations use the words small and narrow interchangeably. And while it is true they are related, the two Greek words that God puts in the original are specifically different. The Greek word that is translated here, small, stenos, refers to a narrow, to a thin, to a restricted place. And the second word that is translated narrow is the word that is related to the word uh, that we get for tribulation in the New Testament. It speaks of difficulty. Tribulation in the Bible is not just a trial you go through. The Bible makes a distinction between trials and tribulations. It is true that all tribulations are trials, but not, not all trials are tribulations. Thalipsis is a word that refers to tribulation, hardship that comes because you confess Jesus as your personal Lord. And the word that's related to it here, thalepo, is a word that means hard or difficult. And so the New King James uses the word difficult for the second word. The ESV and the Net Bible render it hard. In essence, it is a hard way because very often as you truly, genuinely identify with Jesus, you will be rejected. The King James calls it the straight and narrow way. And the multitudes here that are on the broad road, they're carefree. They think everything is fine. And they give no thought for the fact that they're headed for an eternal precipice that once they have crossed that line, they will never be able to cross back over. And so the narrow road is a road where people have changed their mind. Now, we might ask a question, why is the gate so narrow and why are there so few people who are on it? And the answer is very simple. The small gate, the constricted gate as we might render it, is so straight that there's no room for any kind of deviation. It has boundaries. Why? Because truth is not something you make up. It's something you discover. It is something that God has revealed in His holy, infallible Word. There's no room for a self-righteous lifestyle. There's no room for selfish ambition. There's no room for a person who's not willing to renounce their sin, because until you're willing to change your mind about sin, metanoia, metanao, the verb and the noun means to change your mind. We render it repent. Unless you are willing to repent, you'll perish. And I say willing, not able, willing. People make sometimes repentance a work. It is not a work. The one who sins is a slave to sin. But you must be willing to change your mind about sin, call what God calls evil, evil, or you have no need for a genuine Savior. And when you enter this narrow road, it's like entering a turnstile into a stadium, only one at a time, because only you can make that decision. Your parents cannot make it for you. You're not a Christian because your grandparents are. Each one of us 
must make a personal decision for Jesus Christ. Now, you see, the people who are on this road have discovered that they have a need for a kind of righteousness that they can never, ever earn. The key verse in the whole sermon found here in Matthew 5 through 7 is Matthew 5 and verse 20. Jesus said, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Pharisees had a righteousness that was outward. They were the most religious people of the day. Three different times during every day of the week, they went to the temple, they prayed for an hour, they fasted two days out of seven, they gave a tenth of all that they had. It was a righteousness that was only outward. But it never touched the heart. And God wants us to understand that the kind of righteousness we need is so high, you cannot achieve it on your own. The truth is, as Jeremiah 17 in verse 9 brings out, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? People say, well, I just follow the inclinations of my heart. I just follow my conscience. Your conscience can be seared. It can become callous. It can become an unreliable guide. And so people who are on the narrow way recognize they need a different kind of righteousness that comes from a birth from above. Jesus said it this way, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see. He'll say a few verses later, he cannot answer the kingdom of God. If you want to see God's kingdom, perceive it, understand it with spiritual eyes, you need a birth from above because a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. If you want to enter God's kingdom, if you want to see the inside of heaven, you must be born from above. That's the only option. It's a narrow option, but that's the nature of truth. People say to me on occasion, Pastor Brogy, you are just so narrow-minded I actually take that as a compliment because that's what Jesus is speaking about. Jesus was a very narrow-minded person when he asked us to come through the narrow gate. But if you're God in human flesh, you can be narrow-minded because everything that you say is absolute truth. And if you are a Christian and believe what the Lord Jesus said, then you must be narrow-minded. You see, the broad road is a well-traveled road. It is a crowded road because it's a deceptive road. Twice over, Solomon says in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. This is why God said in Jeremiah 21, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Jesus put it this way in his narrow-minded way in John 14, 6. I am the way. And of course, when he said, I am the way, he made every other way a dead-end street. He said, I am the truth. And when he said that, he made every other system a lie. And when he said, I am the life, he made every other way a way to death. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's narrow. Now listen, there is a lot of people today who want to broaden the straight and narrow. But the Lord Jesus did not preach that way, and neither will I. And if that bothers you, don't take it up with me. Take it up with God. Say, God, when you wrote John 14, 6, you were obviously misinformed. 
But I wouldn't say that to God, certainly not before you've examined the unique nature of the Bible, for this is the only book with historical evidences behind it. You know, the Book of Mormon, they're always searching for all these places and all these uh, different geographical locations that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon, and they can't find one. But the museums of this world are filled with all the historical evidences mentioned in the Bible, and it is the only book with fulfilled prophecy lending its authority. So the Bible is a narrow book, but it can be a narrow book because it is the Word of God. But knowing that God wants people to be saved, notice also there in your outline, there is an exhortation to enter the narrow way. And I know there are people who don't like pastors who say, well, this is the way it is, walk ye in. But listen, they're not consistent. When I got on an airplane yesterday, I wanted my airline pilot to be narrow-minded. You tell that pilot he is right for letting down the landing gear. I want him to let it down. Yet these same people, you know, they they want their pharmacist to be narrow-minded. They want him to dispense the right prescription. They want their cardiologist to be narrow-minded. Doctor, stick to the heart. Don't mess with my kidneys. Don't mess with my lungs. Yet somehow, while they want a narrow-minded person in all these other disciplines, when it comes to the most essential discipline of life, where you will spend eternity, it doesn't matter. Believe whatever you want to believe. As long as you believe something, it doesn't make any difference. So here in verse 13, Jesus invites us to enter by the narrow gate. Why? Because there's a decision that you must make. Now, as I look around this congregation, we all basically look the same. But understand, God doesn't look at outward appearances. God looks at the heart. Our tendency is to classify people horizontally. We speak of upper class and middle class and lower class. We speak of rich and poor, young and old, black and white and Asian. And we make all these horizontal classifications. But God always measures people vertically. In God's economy, there are only two classifications of people. Those who are on the broad road and those who are on the narrow road. Those who bear good fruit, those who bear bad fruit. Those who are good trees, those who are bad trees. Those who are wise men, those who are foolish men. Those who receive Christ, those who reject Christ. One who is on the road to heaven, the others who are on the road to destruction. You can't remain neutral. God calls you to make a choice. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 12 and in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It's impossible to remain neutral. There is no middle road. Now, people don't like that. People want to be uncommitted, and so in virtually every survey you take, there's yes or there's no or there is undecided. People love to remain undecided, but to remain undecided is to have made a decision in God's economy. Look at verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate. Now, I think it's important that Christ does not have to say enter the Broadway. He says enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Why doesn't he say, uh, why does Jesus simply say, enter by the narrow gate? For the simple reason, we're already on the broad road. We're already living on the broad road that leads to destruction. Why? Because by nature, by choice, by decision, by lifestyle, we are sinners. 
We're condemned already, to use Jesus' words in John 3, 18. We're already born under the judgment of God. In Ephesians 2, by nature, we are children of wrath. So God's desire is not that men should perish, but that men might be saved. And so Jesus, in expressing his purpose for coming to earth, said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. So to recapitulate here for a moment, there's just two ways. There's a broad way, there's a narrow way. There's two gates, the wide gate and the small gate. There are two groups, many and few, and there are two destinies, destruction and life. There's no third alternative. And we live in a day where people resent the necessity of making a choice, but there is a decision to make. That's the first truth I want to underscore from this sermon. Secondly, there's another lesson I want to see from Christ's teaching, and that is not only is there a decision to make, there is a deception to avoid. So in verses 15 through 20, Christ gives a warning against false prophets whose ministry it is to keep people from the small and narrow gate. Notice the warning that he begins with in verse 15. Beware of the false prophets. On the blitz last year, I came up to a home and it said, beware of the dog. What does that do to you? Well, it kind of sensitizes you. I came up to one home some years ago. It said, beware the pit bull. That really sensitized me. Now, don't tell me about your pit bull, how he's like a sweet little poodle. Maybe he is, but most of them I don't see that way. But listen, when you come up to a house and it says, beware of the wolf, I mean, I guarantee you would be extra careful. And so Jesus is trying to sensitize us because he knows that such people exist. In fact, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 24 that that period of time preceding the second coming of Christ to earth, not only will it be characterized by the worldwide spread of the gospel, but there will be a rise of false prophets. And so Jesus is saying, beware of the wolf. And of course, the fact that Jesus can say, beware, assumes that there is an absolute standard of truth, that not everything can be believed, not everything is relative. His implication is that a true preacher of God will be consistent with this book, and a false preacher will not. Now, I want you to notice there are two truths that Christ tells us about these false prophets. First, he tells us something about the fleece that they wear, the fleece that they wear. In verse 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now in Israel, the wolf to this day is still the natural enemy of the sheep. And since sheep are defenseless against wolves, a good shepherd is to protect his sheep from the ravenous, hungry, bloodthirsty wolves. And so earlier in John chapter 10, earlier in his ministry, Jesus tells us that a good shepherd will always be on the lookout for a wolf, whereas the hired gun, the hireling, the hired laborer, he won't care about the sheep. And of course, when Jesus again says, beware the false prophets, once again, there is an assumption that there is a standard of objective truth in which you can discern the error of a false teacher. And so Jesus is not like one of those religious liberals of our day where under the guise of tolerance, they can say, well, everyone's view ought to be embraced. Jesus believed that truth 
could be distinguished from error. Otherwise, his whole notion of a false prophet is meaningless. Now, you may not agree with what the Lord Jesus said, but I just want you to know what he plainly taught. People today talk about the religious right and the liberal left. It's not a matter of right and left. It's a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of absolute truth. And this verse indicates that false teachers are both dangerous and they are destructive. Notice he said they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Listen to your pastor this morning. Satan is the master of deception. When you read the book of Jude, a book that deals with apostasy, Jude warns us that false teachers just don't walk into a pulpit or false believers into the church and say, I'm a false teacher. I'm not a real believer. No, they come in quietly. They come in unnoticed. They come in deceptively. They come, Jesus said, as wolves in sheep's clothing. So when the United Church of Christ said the acceptance of the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender lifestyle is an historic moment in the life of our church, you are hearing the voice of a wolf in sheep's clothing. When just a few years ago, the Presbyterian Church USA voted to, quote, change its definition of marriage and allow its pastors to officiate same-sex ceremonies now that gay marriage is legal, you are listening to the voice of a wolf in sheep's clothing. It may be legal in man's eyes like abortion, but it's not in God's eyes. And three weeks ago, when the United Methodist Church and their bishops and leaders met together, they said, well, we no longer should be one denomination, but we need, because of the controversy over LGBT clergy and members and same-sex weddings, they said, and I quote their proposal was, the best means to resolve our differences, allowing each part of the church to remain true to its theological understanding while recognizing the dignity, equality, integrity, and respect of every person. They said, look, we, 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 can, we can have this denomination. We just need to be understanding that there's two different ways of looking at this. And they argue that this is the Bible conclusion, that this is the way we show love, this is the way we preserve unity. Listen, truth and unity go together. You cannot separate them. Unity has boundaries. Christ doesn't call every professing Christian to be unified. He calls true born-again believers to be unified based on what he has revealed in this book. And so they are like sheep in wolf's clothing. They are twisting the Bible, trying to make the Broadway even broader because Satan is a purveyor of lies and those who serve him never come in and say, I am a liar, I am a wolf. No, they come in as teachers of truth, and the theologically naive will quickly embrace what they say. They may come under high-sounding titles, reverend this, the most reverend that, the pope this. They may come with all kinds of degrees and letters after their name. They may come with kind, a kind of charisma and a kind of charming personality that quickly wins people, but God is warning us that they are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing when they go against the clear standard of Scripture. 
and the untaught and the naive and those lack who lack discernment can quickly embrace their false teaching. Now, in addition to the fleece that they wear, I want us also to consider the fruit that they bear, the fruit that they bear. How do I recognize a false prophet when I see one? Christ tells us twice over in this passage by the fruit that they bear. And so Jesus no longer speaks about animals. He speaks of trees. Look, if you will, now at verse 16. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? And the implied answer is, of course not. And so while in the first example, a wolf can disguise himself, a tree cannot. Harmful weeds like thorns and thistles cannot produce edible fruit like grapes and figs. And so here in verses 17 and 18, Jesus is calling us to be discerning. Notice, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. If good fruit is produced, then it is a healthy tree. If bad fruit is produced, it is an unhealthy tree. In either case, a tree cannot produce contrary to its nature. And so in verse 19, Jesus says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's what a farmer does with a bad tree. And that's what God Almighty will do at the day of judgment with all the lost people of this world. And so for emphasis, Jesus repeats himself and he draws a conclusion in verse 20. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, of course, the application of the fruit test is not always as simple and as straightforward as you might think. Fruit takes time to grow. Fruit takes time to mature. And sometimes we can have a new Christian or an immature believer whose fruit is not all that impressive. We have to wait patiently for the fruit to develop. And even as it does, we need to examine it quite closely. From a distance, a tree might look healthy. But as you get up close and you examine the truth, you might find the wormhole or the presence of disease or, or some kind of unhealthy aspect to the fruit. And so Jesus wants us to carefully examine what a teacher may say. It's not a super, superficial observation of his teaching. You need to sometimes look very closely because he can use the language of historic Christianity with a different, different, a different dictionary to define the words. So what are these fruits? So that we can detect false prophets and beware of them. Let me suggest two from Scripture Because remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And repeatedly throughout the Tanakh, God will often underscore that a person's doctrine and a person's fruit are interchangeably connected to one another. In fact, go forward a few pages to Matthew chapter 12 for just a moment. Go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, and on another occasion, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And I want you to look at, if you will now, verse 13. Jesus said there, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. 
Then he says in verse 35, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure what is evil. Now notice carefully verses 36 and 37. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. For by your words you are justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, the Pharisees were the teachers of the day, and their mouths were filled with false teaching, and so they condemned themselves. Christ's point is clear. A man's heart is revealed by his words. And so just as a tree is known by its fruit, even so a teacher is known by his teaching. And one of the common traits of a false teacher is that he has an amoral optimism, And you see this underscored over and over and over again. He paints the love of God and the mercy of God and the tolerance of God, but he never mentions the justice of God and the wrath of God and the condemnation that sin brings. The prophet Jeremiah said this in his day in Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. And of course, such false teaching was a tremendous disservice to the Jewish people in Jeremiah's day because it developed a false sense of security that they were okay. And it lulled them to sleep in their sin. And there is a failure on the part of a false teacher to warn people that judgment is real. God is love, but he is a consuming fire. And someday he is coming to indeed deal with sin and to judge it. So I don't think it's accidental that as Jesus speaks here of false prophets here in the Sermon on the Mount, that he is speaking of it in the context of two gates and two ways and two crowds and two destinations. And one of the things that false prophets do also is they tend to blur the way of salvation. In fact, they almost create a middle road, a non-committal road. You don't really have to decide. You can hold on to your sin. You can hold on to your own way. You can follow the inclinations of your heart. You can be the master of your own fate. And then you have some liberals who would dare to even contradict the plain teaching of Holy Scripture. It doesn't matter what road you're on as long as you're on some road, because in the end, they argue it all leads to heaven And I want to tell you, it is essential that every born-again, blood-bought child of God mature in their faith, and that has to happen through expository teaching. That is the only way you can ground people. And all this nonsense and psychobabble and love languages and all these personality tests and everything else, critical race theory and intersectionality and all these outside tools we are bringing into the church go against the clear teaching of Scripture, and it will never help you to mature and get grounded in your faith. You cannot be a mature Christian. You cannot claim you are grown up and lack discernment. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says. Concerning him, speaking of Melchizedek, we have much to say. 
and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. This is why, by the way, it is absolutely essential that when men are chosen to lead the church as elders, that they are spiritually mature men, well-grounded in healthy doctrine. Then he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You cannot claim to be a mature Christian and lack biblical and theological discernment because a mature Christian is a discerning Christian. And I'm concerned when people write me through my radio ministry and they get mad at me and they say, look, I've been a Christian for 30 years and I love Joel Olstein and why are you ragging on old Joel? And they love this man, this same guy who repeatedly on three occasions has denied that Jesus is the only way to God. He brags about the fact that he never talks about sin and hell and judgment and that you can have your best life now. He repeatedly argues, he brags about the fact that he doesn't know much doctrine or theology. That tells you right off he's not qualified to be a pastor. Other examples, I'm asked repeatedly on the Bible line now about the new apostolic reformation. You got the uh, word faith movement with Benny Hinn and Ken and Gloria Copeland and Creflo Dollar and Jesse Duplantis and Joyce Meyer and... Joseph Prince, listen, they are false teachers, and people don't have the discernment to see it because they're babes in Christ. And so remember how false teachers are described in the book of apostasy. In Jude, in verse 12, Jude describes them as clouds without water, and that they have the appearance of something to offer that is rich and satisfying. They offer sustenance. But they don't produce, there's no real substance that comes from them. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what God says. Now, there's a second trait of the false prophet, not just in terms of his teaching, but his influence. And so we need to ask, what effect does the teaching of a false prophet have on those who listen? Are they promoting godliness or are they promoting ungodliness? Listen to these words that Moses penned in Deuteronomy 13, just before the Lord takes him home. He said, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. If you claim to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and your life has not changed and your pastor tells you it really doesn't matter, then you are listening to a false teacher, a false prophet. You are hearing a wolf in sheep's clothing. Sound doctrine and holy living are the marks of a true pastor, and he will promote calling his people to the same. 
So we will not be surprised when in a few weeks we come to Revelation 21 and verse 15 and God says, outside, outside of heaven are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Truth matters because truth builds up God's church and it divides error what is false from the way that God would have us in which to go. And certainly, if God's people today were heeding this warning, we wouldn't have Southern Baptists saying we need to use hospitable words in describing the LGBT community. You can't describe perversion with hospitable words. You have to tell people the truth. We wouldn't have the PCA of all Presbyterian denominations doing a study on this same-sex attraction because God's word is clear and we need to proclaim it without stuttering. I want you to see that the words and works of a prophet eventually reveal his true character just as a fruit reveals it's what kind of tree it is. So there's a decision to make. There's a deception to avoid, but finally, there's a destiny in which we are to find. When we come to verses 21 through 23, we find now Christ addressing the subject of two kinds of professions. He is now moving from these false prophets, these who have a false profession, and he wants us to understand at least two things. Number one, not everyone who professes Christ possesses salvation. Don't miss that. Not everyone who professes Christ possesses genuine salvation. So he's moving now from the unsaved teachers to the unsaved hearers. Look what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Jesus is simply saying, if your profession profession does not match your lifestyle, then you have an empty profession. Please understand, a verbal public confession is indispensable to genuine conversion. If a person really knows the Lord Jesus, they will be unashamed of the Lord Jesus. That's why Christ could say, everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who's in heaven. That's why we give people every week some way in which to publicly identify with Christ. But understand, while that is true, there are people who can make an outward confession. It's words only, it's lips only, but the lifestyle does not match. Which brings me to the second point, and that is many professing Christians will meet God's wrath. Many who say they are Christians in the end will meet God in His wrath. Now, in Christ's day, like our day, there are people who profess to be saved, people who say they are born again, but they are really not. And so notice what Jesus says in verse 22. Many, circle that word, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles? Please underscore this word, many. He's not talking about people who embraced one of the isms of this world. 
He is not saying that this is in reference to those who embrace a false uh, form of teaching, so to speak. He is now speaking to those who identify themselves in the realm of Christianity. People who say they are born again, but who really are not. And to drive home his point, he doesn't grab some ho-hum, casual profession of faith. He goes for the most dramatic profession you could think of, where if we saw someone today, we'd say, oh man, they are men of God. She is a woman of God. Look what they do. They prophesy, they preach in his name. They do miracles in his name. They cast out demons in his name. And by the way, Judas did all three of these. And there are illustrations in the New Testament of people doing all three unbelievers who preach in Christ's name, who do quote unquote miracles in his name, and who cast out demons in his name. Christ doesn't deny that reality. But it's talk without truth. It's, it's a profession without a possession of true conversion. And so now the Lord moves from what they are saying about him to what he will say in the end about them. Follow clearly. Look what he says in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never, underscore that word never, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They use the Lord's name very freely in a saving way, so to speak. But their name was unknown to God, not in an omniscient way. He knows everyone's name. He's got the hairs on your head numbered. But the word no here in a saving way, in a personal way. You can say, Martha, Martha, Mary, Mary, Lord, Lord, in the username twice to claim you have a personal relationship with the living God. But he will say, I never, not I once, I never, ever, ever knew you. And because of their unwillingness to truly embrace Jesus as both Lord and Savior, they will be eternally lost. It's a lips only, but not a lifestyle profession. So having stated his premise... And then having illustrated it, Jesus brings the sermon to a conclusion with three applications. Number one, Christ first admonishes us to build on a solid foundation. Having just described two ways, the broad and the narrow, two teachers, false and true, two professions, real and spurious. Now notice beginning in verse 24, the very first word is the word therefore. And so in verses 24 through 27, he brings this sermon to a conclusion by illustrating with two kinds of builders. And why does he do that? Because depending on the road you travel, the kind of teacher that you are, the kind of fruit that you bear, or the kind of profession that you make, you will determine whether or not you are a solid rock builder or a sand builder. Look at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. By contrast, you'll notice here verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Everyone here this morning is building some kind of a spiritual house. You are either a wise builder or you are a foolish builder. Now, externally, I expect that these two homes probably look very much alike. 
They had the same basic floor plan. They had four walls and a roof. They were built in the same general place because both homes experienced the same storm in the illustration. So in that sense, they are very familiar. And as I look over this congregation and as people are sitting in other places on different campuses today, we all probably look a lot alike in the sense that we're all hearing God's word. We're all hearing the Bible being preached. We all want to succeed in life. We all have some basic purposes that we may share. We have a basic plan that we embrace. But the vital difference in these two houses is the foundation. It's the part that you don't see. It's the part below the house. And when we look around the congregation this morning, the difference is not in what you see so much as in what you don't see. Notice the difference. First, there was the rock builder. Jesus said the wise man built his house upon the rock. On another occasion, another sermon, on another day, Luke said it this way. Jesus said he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood rose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. He dug down deep. He had a good, solid foundation that will stand in a storm. But then there's the other house built by Sand Builders Incorporated. (laughs) Notice verse 26. He built his house on the sand. Luke elaborates, he built a house upon the ground without any foundation. No foundation. It just rested on the ground. And certainly it's easier to build that kind of home, and it's certainly a lot less costly. As a matter of fact, it might even look better because the extra money you would have spent on the foundation, you can now put in shutters and nicer windows and, you know, gingerbread trim and maybe a big porch. And while these houses are similar, they're quite different. They all hear this day the same Sermon on the Mount, but they don't all respond in the same way. So in verse 24, Jesus speaks of those who hears these words of mine and acts on them. By contrast, the other man hears the same message. And there's a sense which he wants it. He wants a fire insurance policy. I mean, who wants to go to hell? Nobody wants to go to hell. He wants the benefits of the cross without embracing the one who hung on that cross. And there are many, many, many people within Christendom today who in the end they will find themselves on that road. And so he calls them foolish people. Because notice, he hears these words of mine and does not act on them. Now, again, please understand, he is not speaking here of the outright pagan. He is not speaking of the outright enemy of Jesus. He is addressing the professing Christian. He is speaking of the person who says in reality he has been saved, but really he has not been saved. In the words of the Revelation, he is not an overcomer. He is not one who will persevere, and therefore he will not eat from the tree of life. He is describing a person who may call Jesus Lord, but it's not true. In the parallel passage, the parallel sermon, and Jesus preached many sermons many times, and for every pastor, you should never be afraid of repeating yourself. 
And if you have people say, I've heard that sermon before. Why are you preaching that? That's an arrogant person who is unteachable. Not to mention there are constantly new people who are being saved who need to hear the basics. But in Luke 6, 46, Jesus put it this way. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, understand, no one will be saved by doing the works that Christ gives us to do. And if you think you're going to get into heaven by being good, you will, in the end, end up in hell. But while we are not saved by works, the moment we are born from above, we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by Him. We are new creations whereby He makes us holy. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Listen, there are millions of people who go to church Sunday after Sunday who are going to die and go to hell. I was in an evangelistic outreach and hundreds of people came forward. And I thought, on what basis? Certainly not on the basis of what that man preached because he didn't tell them the truth. And there are many people who have not built their lives upon the rock. And I can't think of anything more chilling than to think you are going to heaven and the moment you die, you discover that you are eternally lost. Where you hear the words of Jesus, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil in his angels. Now, that does not have to happen. That's the whole purpose of the warning. If we take a long, hard look and examine our lives, we can see whether or not we have genuinely placed our faith in Jesus. So that's the first application to build on a solid foundation. Secondly, Christ alerts us to expect the storm. He alerts us to expect the storm. And so twice over in verses 25 and then again in verse 27, Jesus repeats himself. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. Hey, listen, contrary to the popular prosperity message of our day, that if you have enough faith, you won't meet these storms. Storms are going to come to every life to the saved and to the lost, to those who build their life on Christ and to those who build their life on the sand. And all the storms really show is what your foundation is, whether or not it's real faith or pseudo-faith. And my friend, a, a, a faith that cannot stand the storms of life is a faith that cannot be trusted. If you have the genuine item and the storms come, you will indeed stand Third and finally, he admonishes us to build on a solid foundation. He alerts us to expect the storm, but he assures us with the blessing of a solid life. Notice now verse 25, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Luke compares it to a dam bursting. He is like a man building a house who digs deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood rose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Why do some people fold up? Why do some people cave in? And why do others endure? Because some have built their house on silt and muck. 
and others upon the rock. You say, Pastor, I knew of a fine family who once came to our church. Very active. And now they're nowhere to be fine. Oh, but such a fine family. Yes, well-furnished house. All the extras. But a house built on sand. Now understand, Jesus is not speaking here of sinless perfection. But he is speaking of a new direction, of a practice. He is not even saying that a real Christian cannot get out of fellowship with God in the midst of a storm. But I want to tell you, when the storm's over and the sky is clear, a true believer will still be standing. Now think about this for a moment. Think about who was present when this sermon was given. There was Simon Peter, and there was a man by the name of Judas Iscariot, both who had done signs, wonders, and miracles in the name of Christ, both who had publicly identified with Jesus, but one had a life built on the rock and the other built his life on sand. Both preached in his name, both cast out demons in his name, both did miracles in his name when they were sent out. And people would probably maybe even conclude Judas, he had a better house than Simon Peter. I mean, think about who might have had the best looking house. Judas appeared to be rock solid. I mean, who do you entrust the money bag with? Who do you make the treasurer? A person of honesty, a person of integrity. And yet, when Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, no one said, oh, it's that rascal Judas. No, they didn't think it was him. Judas knew how to build a house, almost. But there was a difference. When Peter is asked, who do men say that I am? He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, Peter was weak like many of us. He didn't appear to have much of a house, but he had a good, solid foundation. And I want to tell you, when the storm came through, it was all over for Judas. This morning, he's in hell, but Peter is in heaven. Jesus said he would pray for Peter because he knew a storm was coming. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. He had real faith, and he had a high priest because he had been born from above in New Testament terminology who interceded for him. When the storm hit, oh, maybe he had a few broken windows and a few shingles off the roof and a few fallen shutters, but his house was standing. Do you know why he had the real thing? Because he was willing in humility to bow himself to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Was he weak? Yes. Did he fail more than once? But he had a house built on the rock. Can you say this morning, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Now, the question is not, are you building a, a spiritual house? You are. The question is not, will a storm come? It will. 
But what kind of foundation are you on? Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The time to ask, where is my foundation? What is it on? Is now. Test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Make sure your election and calling is certain. Now, our Father, we thank you for the words of our Savior, for his clear, plain, cogent teaching. I pray today for those who are unsure of their salvation that they would settle it, that they would call upon Jesus in faith, knowing that their sin is offensive and it needs to be forgiven and changed. I pray for those here today, Father, who they've crossed that line, but they need to deepen their walk with you by studying your Scripture, meditating on its truth, and inspecting that salvation afresh that they might grow deeper with Christ. Help us all to do that. Thank you for your incredible grace and mercy. Thank you for the warnings of your wrath that will someday come. Help us this week to be obedient, to share our faith with people who are headed for a storm, some that will end up in destruction because of their unbelief. But thank you for those who will respond to the message whom we will meet in eternity. May we be faithful stewards of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you're here and you have a decision to make, maybe you've never publicly said, I am a Christian. God asked you to do that. Maybe you've not been baptized. That's really how we confess our faith, by immersion. It pictures death, burial, and resurrection, that we've put our faith where God put our sin on Jesus. Or maybe you're here and you need a church home. That's an obedience issue. Every true child of God is called to be obedient. You have a decision to make. I want to invite you as this young lady has come forward. I want you to leave your seat and meet me here in the front. Your coming will be saying, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I want to confess him. For some, I want to be baptized. For some, I've done both of those, but I need a church home, and I want to be obedient to Christ. You may be in Grays this morning. You have a decision to make. You may be a visitor in Bluffton or in Graniteville, and you have a decision to make. Now is the hour of decision. I want to invite you to make it. Matt, would you lead us? We'll sing three verses of this hymn. If you have a decision to make, then step out and meet me right now.